0: This is The Rounds Table. Thanks for tuning in to another week of The Rounds Table. I'm Kieran Quinn, your host, a general internal medicine resident at the University of Toronto. I'm joined by a familiar face at The Rounds Table, Dr. Mike Fralick. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Kieran.
0: As Mike and I like to do, we're going to come at you with four articles instead of two for today. It's another rapid fire episode, and we got a doozy for you. Mike, take it away.
1: All right. First up, a study published recently in the BMJ, actually by my supervisor here, Dr. Paterno, and the study is entitled Cardiovascular Outcomes Associated with Canagliflozin Use Versus Other Non-Gliflozin Antidiabetic Drugs, a Population-Based Cohort Study.
0: And I wonder how many times you can say canaglyphosin in a rapid-fire episode. It's a tongue twister. All right, Mike, what was the research question?
1: Using real-world data, what are the cardiovascular outcomes for canoglifosin compared to other diabetes medications?
0: So we've seen a few major trials in the last few years on these types of medications. Tell me about why this kind of a study approach is important.
1: Yeah, so it's important because the cardiovascular benefits for canagliflozin are certainly impressive: reduce risk of congestor of heart failure and likely reduce overall mortality, cardiovascular mortality. But that was in a setting of high risk patients, um, in the CANVAS trial, and those patients baseline risk was quite high, higher than your average diabetes studies, because it was a cardiovascular safety study. So the question is, Do those same benefits apply to patients who aren't at as high risk of cardiovascular outcomes?
0: So we're putting this in the context of real people in the real world. Uh, Tell me about how they approached this kind of a study question.
1: So they used a nationwide claims database from the U.S. and conducted a retrospective cohort study. Within the cohort, everyone had a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes mellitus. And they looked at patients who were newly prescribed canagliflozin compared to patients who were newly prescribed a DPP-4 inhibitor, a GLP-1 agonist, or a sulfonylurea. Um, They then conducted propensity score matching to adjust for baseline variables. Um, They actually didn't have too many exclusion criteria, which is easier for me to remember and for the listeners too. Apart from um, end-stage renal disease, there, there really weren't any other big exclusion criteria. And here, the primary outcome was a composite of hospitalization for heart failure or a cardiovascular endpoint, which included MI, stroke, or hemorrhagic stroke, and they had a couple secondary endpoints as well.
0: So speaking of table one, tell me, Mike, what are the patients in this particular study look like?
1: So approximately 20,000 patients who were prescribed canagliflozin and were sequentially matched to the comparators that we talked about. um, Patients who were prescribed canagliflozin were generally younger, more often male, and they generally had a lower burden of comorbidities and a slightly higher hemoglobin A1c compared to some of the comparator medications. And I'm talking like hemoglobin A1c of 8.8% versus 8.4%. Um, Still quite similar. And then after matching, what did the patients look like? So the average age was 57, Um, just under half were women. 20% 20% were obese or overweight, 1 in 6 had diabetic retinopathy, um, just under 1 in 10 had diabetic nephropathy, 3% had a past history of congestive heart failure, uh, 10% coronary artery disease. That's a lot to remember. A couple more though, baseline hemoglobin A1C after matching was 9%, baseline GFR after matching was 100 and to your question earlier, um, so 60% were on metformin and 20% on insulin.
0: All right, so a middle-aged individual, male female almost equal with a variety of different complications of diabetes. This sounds like a typical higher risk uh, individual but very common that would walk into any one of our offices. Tell me Mike, what did they find? The the suspense is killing me. So their main findings
1: regardless of the comparator medication there was a very impressive reduction in the risk of heart failure with canogliflozin. So for example, comparing the risk to if someone was newly prescribed a GLP-1 agonist, it was a 40% reduction for patients who got canogliflozin. And what if you compared canogliflozin to sulfonylureas? So in that scenario, a 50% reduction in heart failure for canagliflozin compared to sulfonylurea. And to help contextualize that, we're looking at a number needed to treat of approximately 20 people to prevent uh, one hospitalization for heart failure. And again, like we talked about with these baseline comorbidities, these patients weren't all that sick and much healthier than the patients who were enrolled in the CANVAS trial. And then they had some secondary endpoints And the take-home point is that there is no difference in the risk of heart attack or stroke or unstable angina. Really, the difference is being driven by the reduction in heart failure admissions.
0: So, given that an important study published by Dr. Freilich is a research letter in the New England Journal of Medicine came out not that long ago, I am going to allow you to tell me your concerns with the main limitations of this study.
1: Absolutely. So, I've worked with these data before. So, what are some issues... One, obviously this is non-randomized, and there are other unmeasured confounders that we just don't have access to, and we have to worry whether or not these are balanced between the two groups. As well, it's a relatively short follow-up period, so we're talking six months of follow-up. But, I mean, it's pretty impressive. If there's a benefit within six months, hopefully that line will continue. And also, it would have been nice to see some information on the harms of SGLT2 inhibitors. So, you know, what were the risks of infection? Amputation, which of course in Canvas there was an increase of amputation and DKA, which I'll talk more about in the next study, actually.
0: And just for our listeners, Mike, remind us what was the rough estimate of the incidence of DKA on new starts for SGL two inhibitors?
1: So just under one percent of people will have DKA who are newly prescribed SGLT two inhibitors. So so just under one in a hundred people.
0: So a highly effective it appears medication with not too many counterbalancing measures although not talked about in this study what's the take-home point mike
1: uh, take-home point even among
0: patients without a high
1: burden of cardiovascular disease uh, canagliflozin was associated with impressive reductions in heart failure hospitalization risk
0: is this practice changing for you or as an expert in the field are you already doing this
1: no, it's a good, uh, good question. I don't think I'm an expert either, but um, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, it builds to my enthusiasm. But in all honesty, I don't prescribe canagliflozin because of the increased risk of amputation seen in Canvas. So, you know, in the Canvas trial, there was like a twofold increased risk in amputation, and we're talking maybe six in a thousand people. But that's enough for me to say no can So I actually just prescribed the other two SGLT2 inhibitors. But I bet the results of this study, once they're done for the other SGLT2 inhibitors, I think this is a class effect that we're seeing here.
0: Interesting. All right, well, great start to the show. Let's move on to article number two. It's rapid fire round two, Mike. Here we go.
1: Round two, SGLT2 inhibitor-associated euglycemic DKA, a South Australian clinical case series. So this was published in Diabetes Care in February of 2018. First author is Dr. Meyer.
0: And what did Dr. Meyer and their group ask around this study?
1: So quite simply, what are the characteristics of patients who are started on an SGLT2 inhibitor and are subsequently diagnosed with DKA?
0: And why is this important? It sounds like it's a counterbalancing measure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we just learned about some of the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors and DKA or, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis. It's an important adverse event associated with SGLT2 inhibitors. So as we mentioned, just shy of 1% of patients will develop DKA and it's a relative risk of a a twofold increase in the risk. So uh, that's why I thought this was important.
0: So with an important but rare outcome, how did they propose to answer this particular study question?
1: So they used two sources of data. They conducted a case series of all cases of SGLT2-related DKA from uh, southern Australia over a two-year time period. And then they have an equivalent system to the FDA, but it's called the TGA, and that system routinely gets um, signals sent to them when there are SGLT2, DK related adverse events. And, and these sort of signals can be sent by patients or providers. So they use those two data sources to um, answer their question.
0: Okay. And uh, what specifically were they looking at as far as their primary outcome?
1: So it was really descriptive, which sort of... You know, sounds lackluster, but it's actually really important because, you know, there's a couple point estimates for the risk, but we actually don't have a lot of details about the nitty-gritty clinical information and who might be at higher or lower risk. So they just went about describing what they saw.
0: I think that's fundamentally important, especially for these new medications where we don't know as much about them. All right, so tell me about what the average patient looked like in this study.
1: Yeah, so there were 13 cases from the sort of South Australian health system. And for those 13 cases, eight of them had type 2 diabetes. Interestingly, five had type 1 diabetes. About half the patients had insulin co-prescribed. The median age was 60. The baseline hemoglobin A1c before they got the SGLT2 inhibitor was 9%. And dapagliflozin was implicated in nine of the cases, and empagliflozin for four of the cases. I'll have to check and see. Maybe they don't have canagliflozin in Australia. But what was also cool is they had details on what happened to these patients. So of the 13 cases of DKA, nine of the patients went to the ICU. All of the patients survived. Um, All were treated with IV insulin in over uh, half of the cases The doctors were interviewed after the fact and openly admitted they had never heard of an association between um, SGLT2 and DKA until, you know, the patients got worse or they got some additional help from some other docs. And then um, they found some precipitating events. So half the patients almost had infection and a few of them were recent post-op patients, which was interesting as well. So that's sort of what the case reports look like. And then they also looked at the signals that were sent to the TGA. But I've been doing a lot of talking. Any questions so
0: far, Kieran? No, it it sounds descriptive to me. I'm getting a much better picture. And interestingly, I've seen three cases of DKA in the setting of SGLT2 inhibitors and all three fit exactly as these uh, authors have described.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I've seen a couple cases now. And then with the cases that were submitted to the TGA, there's 82 cases over the time period. We have less nuanced information about them, but there are certain things that are actually really well captured. So of these 82 individuals, the average time from SGLT2 prescription. To DKA is 12 weeks. That's pretty impressive. It ranged from within a couple of days up until a year and a half after uh, patients were started, and they also had their baseline labs, which is um, really impressive. And sorry, I should say not their baseline, more so when they came in with DKA, what did their labs look like? So the pH was seven, the bicarb was seven, the ketones were seven, the anion gap was. 7 times 3 plus a few more was, was 24. And the mean <laughs> glucose was 14. But it ranged between 4.8, which is very, very normal uh, by Canadian units. And by American units, it's like uh, 80 or so and as high as 35. So that was nice to see some interesting details about these patients.
0: Yeah, so, so summarize it for us, Mike. What, what do you think the take-home here out of this uh, nice little study is? So the
1: take-home point, um, there are still some people who are skeptical that SGLT2 inhibitors can cause or or are even associated with the DKA those people often you know get on me at twitter and undercut they undercut what i think is like a very real phenomenon but anyway maybe this case series won't change their mind either but for everyone else This is real, and it happens within 12 weeks. The fact that it happens on average after 12 weeks means there's something we can do about it. So what I routinely do is I order um, baseline bicarb and electrolytes on patients before I start an SGLT2 inhibitor. And, you know, if their bicarb's less than 20, that's not the time to start someone on an SGLT2 inhibitor. So I like it to be normal. And then I repeat it in a month or so. And if it continues to be normal, great. If it's tanking, you know, that's a gentle tap on my back that maybe I should hold off on the SGLT2 inhibitor.
0: Excellent. Uh, So it sounds like you've uh, already incorporated this into your practice. Sounds like an astute, reflective physician as always. Well, Mike, knockdown punch has come. Let's move on to round three. I'm going to take over from here and I'm going to start telling you about my area of interest as it now intersects with your area of interest as far as diabetes and discuss an article that looks at hypoglycemia in hospice patients who have type 2 diabetes in nursing homes across the United States. And this was published in December of 2017 by Dr. Laura Petrillo in the JAMA of Internal Medicine.
1: Perfect. And what was the research question here?
0: They really wanted to look, again, more of a descriptive kind of a study, which was nice. Uh, What is the rate of hypo and hyperglycemia in individuals with type 2 diabetes in nursing homes as they near the end of life?
1: Yeah, I feel like this sort of marries together my research interests with your research interests. But, yeah, why was this important to you, Kieran?
0: Well, beyond our shared interest as it intersects here, it's important because about a quarter of all deaths in the United States are in nursing homes. So it's a common place to die. And blood glucose control should be relaxed near the end of life. We're not aiming for perfection. We're aiming for comfort and quality. And because of that, hypoglycemia, you know, comes along with some fairly unpleasant side effects and symptoms. So... We're really talking about how to manage uh, individuals as the end of life. And we're trying to look at how it's done in the real world in nursing homes across the U.S. Okay, interesting. And then so for this study, what was the study design that they uh, used here? So this is another retrospective cohort study using administrative data. They looked at all patients with an established diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And interestingly, they actually also had access to laboratory uh, information on patients. So they not only used a code for diabetes, they also looked at individuals who had an A1C over 6.5%. And they looked at this in a cohort of people in the Veterans Affairs nursing homes between the years 2006 and 2015. And ultimately what they wanted to measure to answer their research question was the cumulative incidence of hypoglycemia at 180 days. And they looked at that in all hospice patients and then they also looked at it among patients treated with insulin versus patients who were not treated with insulin. So let's talk about a couple of definitions. Hypoglycemia was defined as a glucose of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter in the US. In SI units, that's 3.9, roughly, millimoles per liter. Severe hypoglycemia was a glucose less than 50 milligrams per deciliter or 2.8 millimoles, roughly and hyperglycemia was defined as a glucose of more than 400 milligrams per deciliter, which translates to about 22 millimoles per liter. And lastly, of course, in this kind of a study where people are dying, you have to account for death as a competing risk, so they they took that into account as far as measuring the cumulative rates and how much time had passed. How many patients were involved. Okay, so of the patients included, uh, what did they look like? So they included just over 20,000 residents, it being a VA study, and 98% were men. We've seen this before on VA study-based data. All of them were near the end of life. So as an example, the 100-day mortality rate was 83% of individuals were, were dead by 100 days. And they all had a range of chronic conditions. 35% had cancer, just to give you an example of one of the more common chronic end-of-life conditions. Less than a quarter, just under 25%, used oral antihyperglycemics, and only 8%, interestingly, received insulin. Lastly, 40 to 50% of the individuals had an A1C of less than 7. That's pretty tight control for people who, have, who are going to only live for 100 days more. And their blood glucose, on average, is monitored about once a day, a little more frequently if you're receiving insulin, but uh, as a general rule, about once a day.
1: Huh, that is interesting. And, you know, I guess maybe there's other reasons why their hemoglobin A1c is, you know, less than seven, considering their 100-day mortality was 83%. But yeah, that, that should be a signal to maybe back off on the insulin and back off on the oral meds. And so what, what were some more of the main results here from this study?
0: Well, I actually kind of find these results fairly reassuring as far as if I was looking after somebody or one of my family members was nearing end of life who had diabetes. Only 12% experienced hypoglycemia as a cumulative effect, and 5% had severe hypoglycemia. Now, that was actually different in the subgroup of individuals who were insulin users, so 38% experienced hypoglycemia and 18% experienced severe hypoglycemia and overall about just over a third experienced hyperglycemia. So if you tried to put a sort of a time frame on that the highest risk of hypoglycemia occurred within the first 20 days of admission to the nursing home. And to me that makes a little bit of sense as the nursing staff is getting used to the individual and their, you know, diabetes care and the diets are changing in the home and things are changing so I think that that makes a sort of biological sense in the, in the in that sense.
1: Yeah. Okay. And, and what were some limitations to this study?
0: Well, as you're sort of always limited to in administrative data, severe hypoglycemia certainly can be seen in individuals who aren't eating with concomitant states such as sepsis or liver failure, and maybe doesn't reflect a care matter as far as delivering medications, etc. We wouldn't normally test blood glucose, you know, at very near end of life, especially if they've developed a severe condition on top of their chronic disease. And we wouldn't necessarily treat that condition if we didn't think there was any distressing symptoms. So really, this study is looking at biochemical hypoglycemia and assuming that that's all correlated with with symptoms. And that's what we don't get out of this study is whether the patients are truly uncomfortable as some sort of a measure, or it's just a biochemical reflection.
1: Right. And I guess as well, since like... I know most people got a AccuCheck check once a day. That means some people didn't. I guess there could also be other patients who were hypoglycemic and they just didn't count or had seizures. No, it didn't count. So I guess it's it's hard to know exactly what
0: the risk is. Yeah, exactly. But it's still interesting nevertheless. And, and I think sort of what I take away from this is that, as I said, there's a fairly significant proportion, although not huge, who experience at least what we would call biochemical hypoglycemia near the end of life. But actually, I think it's kind of reassuring in the sense that there's not a lot of people who are actually using insulin or even on oral hypoglycemic agents as they are approaching the end of life. So it, to me, demonstrates that somebody along the way has been thoughtful and probably stopped a lot of those medications because we know that the population average of diabetics would be a lot more use of those medications. So that's reassuring. Yeah, for sure. And how will
1: this impact your practice, do you think?
0: Well, I, I think overall, for me as far as end of life care you know i think it reinforces the idea that you should make sure you're stopping medications that are at risk of causing hypoglycemia but i think as far as a practice in my research world it certainly generates a lot of questions and would be a nice kind of qualitative study to conduct on diabetics near the end of life all right so fourth one last but not least what do we have left for us all right. Final knockout round. Mike, I'm looking at the long-term sustainability of diabetes prevention approaches in a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized trials published by Dr. J. Sonia Ha in November of 2017, also in JAMA Internal Medicine.
1: All right. And what was their research question?
0: Well, Dr. Ha and her group wanted to estimate the long-term effects of different diabetes prevention strategies on the incidence of diabetes. Yeah, this makes
1: sense to me. I mean, we've spent the last... 15 minutes talking about a lot of the bad stuff that can happen when uh, you have diabetes, either from the diabetes or from the treatment. Uh, Now, the title gave it away. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis. But why don't you tell us a bit more about the design here?
0: Yeah, so they looked at um, studies that were published between 1990 and 2015, so relatively modern-day studies. And they included only randomized trials that evaluated lifestyle modification interventions, things like dietary changes or exercise regimens, and they also looked at trials that evaluated medication interventions, and those interventions had to be at least six months in duration, and they were to look at the prevention of diabetes in all adults, not children, and these individuals had to be at risk for diabetes, so at-risk individuals were defined as people who had impaired glucose tolerance or impaired fasting glucose testing. And just as an important point about exclusions, they did not include studies that looked at alternative therapies, because there's a lot of heterogeneity around those types of studies, and they excluded studies of bariatric surgery, since it's a very specific type of intervention. Uh, It's a costly intervention, and it has its own sort of subset of research implications. So I think that was fair. As far as individuals, they didn't look at gestational diabetes prevention, they didn't look at type 1 uh, diabetes prevention, and any individuals who had established type 1 or type 2 diabetes or the metabolic syndrome were excluded.
1: Okay, so essentially it sounds like um, adults who were at risk for diabetes um, and they were looking at diet and exercise and medications as well. So what was the primary outcome here?
0: Yeah, it is as straightforward and simple as that, I think. And what they wanted to measure here was the aggregate relative risks of diabetes in treatment arms, whether it was medications or lifestyle, versus those who did not have the intervention or so-called control participants. And then they sort of broke it down a little bit further and looked at treatment subtypes. So they looked at components of lifestyle modifications, they looked at different classes of medications, And then I think one of the neatest parts of this entire study was to try to get at the sustainability of those interventions. So not just were they effective, but were they durable? Did they last? And so they looked at the post-washout periods and the follow-up periods of the randomized trials, and then tried to quantify the relative risks for both medications and lifestyle modification interventions.
1: That is pretty cool. Uh, So what were the main results?
0: So they included, in the end, 43 studies. God, they screened over 20,000 titles for this study. This was a big, big undertaking. But they came down to 43 that were included, and 49,000 participants were included across those studies. On average, your participant looked to be about a 57-year-old individual and almost an equal split between men and women. Gosh... I just
1: still I can't believe they screened 20,000 um, titles and abstracts. That's painful. Okay, so uh, then what were the main results?
0: So this is where I think it's pretty cool. And I've tried to sort of summarize it uh, or aggregate it as they have done into three things to highlight. So number one, lifestyle modifications were associated with a relative risk reduction of 39%, whereas medications were associated with a relative risk reduction of 36%. So both pretty impressive. If you tried to boil it out into a dietary modifications and you lost a kilogram, there was a 7% lower uh, relative risk for each kilogram that you lost as far as the development of diabetes. So that kind of gives you some something to sink your teeth into. And when they looked at the sort of subtypes of things, weight loss as a lifestyle strategy and insulin sensitizers as a medication appeared to be the most effective as far as prevention of diabetes. Point number two, was that the risk difference between lifestyle modifications and medication studies was four cases per 100-person years. So if that's a number needed to treat of about 25, uh, favoring lifestyle meti- than over-medications. Now, there's an important caveat to that in that this study did not directly compare the two strategies. You would need a network meta-analysis, as the authors point out, to do that. So you can't take that as an absolute truth, betwe- as a difference of efficacy between the two. Lastly, the third point is that at the end of the washout or follow-up periods, lifestyle modification studies demonstrated a relative risk reduction of 28%, so fairly durable compared to their original effect. But medication studies showed no sustained relative risk reduction.
1: Okay, Um, but you're saying that the benefits, like you mentioned, like, RAS, like ACE or ARB, there weren't benefits there. It was mainly for diabetes-related
0: medications where the benefits were. Sorry, yeah, if I didn't make that clear, the, the insulin sensitizers, the, those sort of secretagogues, are the ones that were really the most effective. And sort of RAS blockade ACE inhibitors didn't have any real benefit at all.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so what were some limitations to this study?
0: Well, I think that beyond what I said about not you know, directly making conclusions about lifestyle versus medications as far as which one is more effective. The other thing I wanted to point out was that there was clearly a bias in the study designs as far as the follow-up times. So, for example, the lifestyle modification tri- uh, trials were following up people for years and years, whereas the, a lot of the drug trials would only have several months or a couple years at most as far as their follow-up time. So you're not looking at the same time overall. And that could explain some of the benefit that we saw or durability in the lifestyle modifications is that they just follow them longer to make sure they don't reverse. That being said, they did do a couple of uh, neat tricks to show that really, even in those washout periods, things, you know, fell apart immediately in the drug trials. So they tried to make a case that that wasn't important. Okay, cool. And uh, take home point here? Well, uh, interesting, but you know hard work it always comes down to hard work so prevention of diabetes is possible this is true I think the trials have demonstrated that um, and it can be substantial unfortunately there's no magic bullet there's no magic pill to take and and you know life goes on in that sense you gotta do the hard work you gotta change your diet you gotta lose weight and it does appear that the lifestyle modifications are the most effective based on the fact that there's, they appear to be similarly effective overall and they appear to be sustained over time um, and so I think those are the things to counsel your patients is that you got to roll up your sleeves and, uh, and get in there and do the hard work. All right, cool. Well, Mike, great show. I hope we snuck it in under the time frame that we're usually limited to, but it's never time to cut off the good stuff. So let's move on to my favorite part of the show. Mike, what are you reading about this week? That's catching your eye.
1: So continuing on the exercise piece fascinating story about Roger Bannister. I admittedly did not know who he was, um, but he was the man who broke the four-minute mile. So uh, in 1954, the first person to ever run a mile in less than four minutes. And you might think, well, what's the big deal here? Prior to this, there were eminent physicians who said this was just impossible. Your heart would explode physically, it's impossible for somebody to run a mile in less than four minutes. And he did it. It Turns out he was a medical student at the time. He ran for another year, and then he wanted to focus on his studies. And he later uh, went on to become a world-leading neurologist. But all of that has been overshadowed uh, by him breaking the four-minute mile. And sadly, he died on March 4th, uh, 2018. But it was reading his obituary that I learned about this really fascinating story in his life.
0: Yeah, I uh, you know we are recording this episode on March 5th. I opened my Globe and Mail this morning, and on the very front page was a picture of him and an obituary about him. I also, sh- you know, shamedly did not know who this gentleman was, but I thought if he makes the front page, I should read it, and it was fascinating to hear that he would sneak out between classes to do some wind sprints just as his training regimen, you know, compared to what we see uh, high-level athletes do today. So he's definitely an incredible man and a very incredible mark. He leaves on history. Well, Mike, I was reading about somewhat on the theme of prevention, a gentleman named Mike Monteith, who is a Toronto entrepreneur who developed a company called ThoughtWire. And this company created an app that detects deterioration in an inpatient in hospital before they go into cardiac arrest or code blue and they do this by using data that is readily entered by nursing staff at the bedside and they just use a device that goes through the ThoughtWire app now. So the idea is you want to reduce code blues before they actually happen and so the app works by monitoring clinical information that the nurse is entering and if there's trends that are developing that are concerning then the app alerts the sort of rapid response for critical care teams to go and see the patient before they're called to see that patient as a code blue situation. And the concept for this came from the idea that there's an an incredible amount or a hurricane amount of data that is produced in a hospital every day on a patient and it's constantly changing. It's so much so that busy, even well-meaning physicians and healthcare providers may not have the sensitivity to detect these changes, but a computer algorithm can. And so... Their preliminary results demonstrate that they had a 42% reduction in code blues across a Hamilton uh, area set of hospitals. So I think it's pretty exciting stuff on how you can use data and computer software programming at the interface. It's
1: very impressive stuff.
0: Mike, always a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, We hope to have you on again sometime soon and enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thanks, Karen. Always a pleasure.
0: The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstable podcast. The roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on air and behind the scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcias Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, shaliza Halani and faculty mentor and founder of The Round's Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.